You can be seated. So we're doing things a little differently this morning. Uh, just one song at the beginning because we're going to get into the word and then we're going to respond uh, and have the majority of our worship after my two-hour sermon. So uh, it's going to be exciting. We're going to bleed into the next service and into the day. Uh, it's going to be great. So uh, we are starting a new series today, and I can't tell you how excited I am that with that new series, we have a new blackboard. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I know, none of y'all are as thrilled as I am. I just love it, you know, I'm kind of geeking out on it. And uh, one of our Midtowners built that for us. And what we're going to be talking about this whole fall uh, is we're going to be talking about leadership. And we felt like it was really essential for us to deep dive into what does it mean to be a Christ follower and also to be a leader. Um, and when you think about this world that we're living in right now, this crisis of COVID, this crisis of social injustice, this crisis of political conflict and the chaos that's going on in our world, when you look at Afghanistan and all that's happening there, I don't know if there's a better time for us to pause and just talk about what it means to be a leader. Because all of us are leaders. Um, you're leading your family, you're leading in the workplace, some of you are leading in politics, some of you are leading in medicine, uh, but all of us are leaders even if all that we're doing is leading ourselves. Now let me try to explain that. If, if I don't have like an awareness of what it needs to be a leader here, um, then instead of me intentionally living my life I'm unintentionally living my life being led by something else. So let me try to explain without getting into too much detail. If I've not led my way through the trauma of my past, the trauma of my past is leading me. You got that? If, I, if I'm not leading through the, the pain of my past, then the pain of my past is actually leading me. Or if I'm not leading through, and here's the crazy thing that we talk about a lot, all of you grew up in families um, that, how do we say this, that had people in them. <laughs> and people are messy, and those people messied on you. Like, that happened to you. And if you don't come to grips with what your family taught you about love and about money and about sex and about life, uh, then you're going to hang on to those things and you're going to come into this new family system called the family of God who has a whole completely different understanding of these things than probably what you grew up with. If you don't understand that, then these old ways are still going to be leading you. You tracking with me? Hey, and is John here? John, There's John. That's a blackboard guy. John built our blackboard. Thank you, John. Talk about leadership. That's great. So we're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah, and uh, that's a book in the Old Testament, so get your Bibles out. If you've never read this book, it's a fascinating book, uh, but I have to put it in some kind of context before we can actually dive into it, and this is, this is the historical timeline of God's redemptive history to try to give you some idea of uh, where Nehemiah fits into that. So when Adam and Eve... Uh, you know, ate of the apple in the Garden of Eden, and they got the boot from the Holy Spirit with the flame, flaming sword, God began his story of redemption. And it starts by, uh, he called out Abraham, and Abraham, you know, had the Ten Commandments, and no, it was, that was Moses, right? 
Okay, but we go back to Abraham, and Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. And through him came Moses, and Moses led all of God's people out of captivity. They were all in Egypt, and they were slaves in Egypt. And Moses came and led them out and gave them the Ten Commandments. And then God established the nation of Israel with King David. Maybe you've read this story. Then King David had a son, and his name was Solomon. And Solomon was what? Do you know? Yeah, he was really wise, but he had this thing about women, and it wasn't good. And so... He passed on, and we thought this was going to last forever, and then he had a son named Rehoboam, who was a, who was a real loser. Uh, that was great, wasn't it? And the nation was split, and so the northern uh, part of the nation was called Israel, the southern part was called Judah, and they were at odds with one another, but the temple existed in the southern area of Judah. And so around 5, maybe 40 B.C., this king called Nebuchadnezzar, who was ruler of all of Babylon, invaded Jerusalem and, uh, and took the greatest and the best of Jerusalem captives. That's where we get the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that from Sunday school? And so Nebuchadnezzar began to just harass the city of Jerusalem. It was in disarray. And finally, eventually came back and took everybody and destroyed the city. Well, then there was a king that came along who, his name was Cyrus, and he, he was the king over Persia. And this, maybe you've read about him in your history books. He was Cyrus the Great. They called him the king of kings because he was the ruler over the entire Persian empire that expanded across the completely known world at that time. And Cyrus actually invaded and took over Babylonia, or Babylon, and now Babylon and all the rulers of Babylon were now under the leadership of Cyrus. So everything Nebuchadnezzar had conquered now belonged to Cyrus the Great. And he was kind of a, he was an interesting bird of his time because he had this revolutionary idea that the best way to rule multiple nations is to give their nation back to them. And so y'all established some, king, some rules, whatever, kingships or whatever, but all of them are serving under me. And so they need to pay me taxes. They need to uh, pledge allegiance to the Persian Empire. And because of that, Cyrus gathered the Jews together and said, I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem. See how God is even working. And he sends them back to rebuild the temple that was destroyed. And you can go and read. This is where we get the book of Ezra, then the book of Ruth is in here. There's the res res restoration of the less glorious temple. The people gathered and they mourned because the smoke of God didn't descend on the temple like it did on the first. But as they go back to rebuild this temple, this is about where we get right about in here. This is where we get Nehemiah. Because as they went back to rebuild the temple, they started to rebuild the wall. And all the people, all the nations around Jerusalem got really nervous. It's, if, if you can imagine, you know, Edley's down here on 12 South. If another barbecue place came in, they would start to get nervous because they want to corner the barbecue business on 12 South. Well, all these other nations goes, if a new nation rises up in our midst, now we have to contend with them in politics and in power and they were against it. And actually, they started to come in and wage war against Jerusalem. 
and they destroyed the wall. And the whole city of Jerusalem was in disarray, and it didn't look very good for them. And this is where the story of Nehemiah begins. You're with me? Okay, Emily, you're going to come and read for me? Yes, this is Nehemiah chapter 1. We're starting in verse 1. And let me give you a little heads up about Nemo, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, uh, you're going to hear this, he was the cupbearer to the king. And this is Arxaxerxes, who is now the king over the Persian Empire. Denarius had now died. He took over Cyrus, and now Arxaxerxes is king. And when he says he's the cupbearer, the idea is that Nehemiah was the guy who tasted the wine before the king so the king wouldn't be poisoned. But it was really more than that. Um, Nehemiah was the chief of staff. This was a man of high, high authority. He was in a position of power. In fact, he was a Jew that had probably grown up with his parents under the rule of the Babylonians, and then he kind of grew up under the education of the Persians, and he ascended to this political position to where now he was the chief of staff for the king of all of Persia. Pretty big deal. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Lord, give us wisdom and insight. Holy Spirit, Um, we need you to come and rescue us from ourselves and we pray that Lord um, you would not hold my sins against those in this room but that Lord somehow you would use the foolishness of preaching to accomplish the work of your kingdom in Christ's name amen so uh, how strange Nehemiah heard the news the walls were torn down the gates are burned and he wept. Like, think about that for a minute. He, he didn't just weep. He, he actually brought grief to his tears, and it says he mourned. And he didn't just mourn, but he brought to this aching of his heart, this, this pain that he's feeling inside of him, he, he brought fasting to that. And he didn't stop there. He, he not just brought fasting to what was going on in his heart, he also brought prayers. How strange. I mean, honestly, let's think about it. Like, in your own life, how often when you face crisis do you stop and give your heart time to feel pain? To the point to where you fast to give full weight to that pain. And then in that fasting, you dedicate yourself to prayer. I would say very few of us ever do that at all. Because really, there, I want you to imagine that there are really kind of like two lives going on in our life. One is this horizontal line, which is kind of our relationship with the world. And the vertical line, which is our relationship with God. And what's crazy about these two lines is that the horizontal line, I get, nobody has to explain this one to me. 
because I know what's in the horizontal line. I got my family. If I'm single, I probably got some dating or I got lack of dating. I get that. Or if I've got jobs that you got to get up and go to tomorrow morning and you got responsibilities and expectations and stress and what is success to you and what is success to other people and who are you living for yourself or them or some model of success and we got money like money uh, dude we don't have to be we don't have, nobody has to explain that to us we get the power of money we have friends in this line we have hobbies in this line we have stuff in this line some of you are going to school and you got school in this line and you have gifts in this line and talents in this line you have your enneagram number in this line i mean you got it all like this is you and your world i mean even even in here in church we we love this line here it's easy for us to think about god only through the context of ourselves or what we get out of it, or did I like church, or I didn't like church, was his sermon good, did I like him, I didn't think he was funny, everybody seemed to laugh, but he really wasn't that funny, it's true. And it's such a temptation in our lives to live our whole lives right here on this, this horizontal line. Because the temptation is, it's so powerful. I mean, think about the people in your life that nail this. Like, the people that you admire. Don't, don't we love it when people do this with such beauty? Like people that get like stupid rich. Like cha-ching. Like don't you love it when you see people in your career that just nail it? They're the Michael Jordan of whatever it is that you do. There's such admiration for them. And isn't that admiration really anchored in a deep desire to be that? Or don't we love admiring people that have influence? People in position of influence. Don't you love, wouldn't you love to have somebody on speed dial? Speed dial, the guy that can get you in to anything. Like the show is coming, and it's tomorrow night, and it's sold out, and it's been sold out forever, and then you got that person that you can call that says, you know, all I have is backstage passes, do you want that? Like, yes, and then you tell your friends, you know, I called Bert. He's got us in. We love that. We love that so much. And here's the temptation of this line. And just stay with me, okay? Because this is true about every one of us in this room. There is a part of us that believes that everything we need to get through this life is found in this line. So, Let's go to Mark chapter 10. This is a story maybe you're familiar with. This is Jesus, the story of Jesus, and this rich young ruler comes to him. And this is a guy who has nailed this line. Like, he's nailed it. He's young, he's rich, and he's got influence. I mean, he's a triple threat. I bet he's good looking too, and he can sing, and his name is Justin. That's just what I'm guessing, all right? It says in verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fail, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we don't know the intention. We're not going to mind read this guy. But I just want to use my sanctified imagination 
to believe that he's not just asking, when I'm done with this line, how do I get up here? I think he's saying, I've traveled this line, I've drank everything this line has for me, I've grabbed a hold of it, and it still has left me wanting. How do I not just have eternal life when I die? How can I have that eternal life now? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? He's doing his little mind ninja thing there. And Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. He said, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And listen to what he said. Teacher, all of that I've done. Because he had. I mean, here's the really interesting thing. This line seduces us into thinking it is what we need. And when it does that, and I face crisis as a leader, the only question that I'm asking is how. That's it. How do I use what I have? How do I use what other people have to actually get through this crisis? Where's the power? Where are the resources? Where are the answers? Who are the right people? This, this is a how line. And when the rich young ruler said to Jesus, I've done all that, he was being serious. I have done all that. In fact, he probably could have a crowd of people around him going, yep, he's never murdered anybody. Yep, I've never, he's never committed adultery. Yep, he's never stole from us. Yep, he's never given any false testimony. He's not defrauded any of us. And he honors his father and mother. You wouldn't believe how much he honors his father and mother. He is one good dude. And listen... <laughs> What's remarkable about this passage, Jesus only lists six commandments. Y'all remember how many there are? Ten, right? (laughs) Cheat sheet, all right, there you go. Why did he only list six? Because listen to what he left out. Don't have any other gods before you. Always honor the name that God wears and keep the Sabbath. Take a day a week and stop and pause and marvel at the gift that God has given you and give him glory. Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then, then come and follow me. The man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. What was Jesus saying? He summed up this whole line right here as come and follow me. See, Nehemiah sat down and he wept for days and mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Because something had happened in Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah had had fostered a vertical life with God. And I gotta just warn you, because I'm about to challenge you to foster a, a a vertical life with God, if you choose to do that, it is going to mess you up. Because one of the things that's going to happen when you begin to foster this vertical life, Nehemiah wasn't running to God because he was in crisis. Nehemiah was running to God because that was his life, and in crisis it was the place that he went. He was ready for crisis because of what he had fostered with God. But if you go to God, one of the things it's going to do is it's going to really mess you up. Because you know what God calls himself? This is the name he gives himself, love. 
And if you're going to run and foster this relationship with love, he's going to awaken your heart to love, and love will always mess you up. I promise you, you'll never be able to pass a puppy on the side of the road ever again. I mean, seriously, it begins to change us from seeing the how question to now it changes to the why question. Why? Because what is the answer? To love. That's what we're here for. In fact, for me to follow Jesus, for me to actually say I'm going to foster this vertical line and mature in this, we know what he's calling us to because Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He's taking us to sacrifice. The rich young ruler, he said, leave it and come and follow me. But to you and me, he's going to say the same thing. He's going to say to us, let go of certain things so that we can grab hold of certain things. He's going to teach us how to embrace our limits. I know, that sucked. We're going to learn to feel guilt. We're going to learn to feel sadness. We're going to learn to feel joy. And then we're going to learn something beautiful, that all of those things hold hands together. In fact, I can't feel true gladness unless I'm opening my heart to all the things that God made me to be. I'm going to learn how to rest, which that fights against my world of do. And Sabbath is going to take on a whole new meaning for me. It's not a command anymore, but it's an invitation. I'm going to learn the power of the word. I'm going to learn the power of small groups. I'm going to be teachable. I need to be in your life because I need you to disciple me. I need for you to tell me what you see, and I need to be in your life because you need me to disciple you. And then I'm going to learn to pray. I love what Mother Teresa said when somebody asked her, would you tell us what you pray about? And she said, uh, what do you mean? They said, well, what do you say in prayer? She goes, I don't say anything. I just listen. That prayer now takes on a whole new purpose in our lives. One of my professors in seminary say that, that prayer isn't running to God to try to get God to answer something so that he can do something for us. Prayer is like sitting in a boat and you throw an anchor to the beach of an island and then you pull the rope. And he goes, does the island come to the boat or does the boat come to the island? He said, prayer transforms us because we're with the Lord. This is Cyril Barber who wrote a commentary on the book of Nehemiah. He said, the self-sufficient do not pray. They merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will, never, will not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. And the self-righteous cannot pray because they have no basis on which to approach God. And a true leader is none of these things. Nehemiah wasn't turning to prayer in a time of need. Nehemiah had fostered a life of prayer for whatever the times were. See, this is the heartbeat of what it really means to be a great leader, is to first go to the great leader, which is Jesus, and let him transform you. And this is the beauty of the gospel, because Jesus has secured this vertical line between us and the Father, and his blood gives us power. Do you know, it says in, in the Lord's Prayer, the last line of the Lord's Prayer, it says, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil which is saying, God, we believe that there's evil in this world, and we believe that you're the one that has the power to deliver us from evil, that you are greater than whatever happens on this earth. And so we're coming to you to be transformed by you, knowing something that's greater than our self-sufficiency, our satisfaction, or even our self-righteousness. So how did Nehemiah pray? Let's go back to 
Nehemiah chapter 1, and there's actually his prayer. Emily didn't read it, but I'm going to show you very quickly the three things that he prayed for, and then we're going to do it. You with me? The first thing he did was, you could call this praise, you could call this worship, you could call this standing in the presence of the awe of God. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive to your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant in prayer before you day and night for your servant and the people of Israel. What is he going? He's coming to God and saying, you are awesome. Like you are the mighty God of heaven. You are the creator of all things. You're the sustainer of all things. You are the one that started history, and you're the one that's going to conclude history. We stop and acknowledge you, who you are. What does it do? What does it do when we stop and practice being in the presence of God and recognizing who he is? So I can remember the first time I grew up with two brothers. Uh, I'm the middle, which explains everything. And I, I remember the first time our parents left us home alone. And uh, we thought, freedom, this is great. Like, we're just going to eat whatever we want. We're going to stay up as late as we want. And as soon as the sun went down, we became terrified because we were certain that there were criminals all around our house trying to break into our house. Every little noise was an opportunity for us to come up with a new imagination about what's right outside that window. And we were walking around the house with, like, knives from the kitchen and, like, you know, baseball bats. And we were terrified. I'm seriously, our, is it possible our imagination had created something that was not true, but our bodies were reacting to it as if it was true? Our adrenaline was pumping. We were ready to fight. Like, what we were going to do? I was, like, seven years old, you know? And, but we were ready. We were ready for combat. And the oddest thing, as soon as my dad walked into the house, we put down our baseball bat, we put down our knives, we put down our imagination. Why? Because daddy was home. There was no fear. We could go to sleep. I mean, somebody could literally be breaking into the house and we'd be like, dad's got it. I don't have to worry about it. That's what, that's what Nehemiah's doing here. He's acknowledging, God, you're in the house. With COVID, Jesus, you are on the throne. When all the stuff, the social injustice that's happening and the stuff that's happening in our city, Jesus, you are on the throne. With our friends who have been sick or struggling or mask or no mask, Jesus, you are on the throne. Even when we think about the church in Afghanistan right now, we join with them in saying, Jesus, that you are on the throne. So Nehemiah starts there, that you're the one that is more powerful than anything that I have on this line. The second thing he did was he confessed. He said, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Verse 7, we've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So not only do we acknowledge him, but it's normal when we see God to actually confess our sins. It's what Peter did when he saw Jesus for the first time. He said, go away from me. I'm an unworthy man. But for us that know Jesus, we know that our confession of sin is not to get a fresh forgiveness of sin. Our confession of sin is to return us back to sanity of grace. 
that we're remembering, oh, you went to the cross and took all my sins, and you said it is finished. And now you don't ever deal with me according to my sins anymore. And my sins now are just blinding me of the gift that I have with you. And so when I confess that, and I remember how much you love me, it allows me to do the third thing. And this is the most outrageous thing. Ask. Praise, confess, and ask. Verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and to the prayers of your servant who delights to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What is he talking about? I'm about to go to the king and I'm going to make a big ask. And I'm asking you to bless it. It's acknowledging I'm limited, you're not. I can't, you can. I'm weak, but you're strong. I can't open doors that you can open, and I can't shut doors that only you can shut. And I'm coming to you, and I'm saying, I submit myself to you and want to follow where you're going. See, when we know this answer, this answer becomes really easy. So that's where we're going to start. So I'm going to pause and pray and bring our band back in, and we're going to go through a season of praise, confession, and also asking the Lord. So join me. Lord, we pause right now and tell you that we are the people that have We've gotten it backwards, Father. We've spent so much time building and fostering the horizontal line that we so often forget the vertical line. That we see making our mark in this world or getting it done in this world or gathering more has replaced being with you. Lord, we so often forget um, who we are, and we forget who you are. So as we begin this first step of being a leader and knowing that, Lord, we first walk in the deep, quiet places with you. We first come and recognize and acknowledge your face and your name and foster that part of our lives, Father, that, that gives us the why, why we're here, who you are, and what is love that then we can go into this horizontal line, Father, as leaders that easily know the answer to the question, how? Lead us now, we pray, Father, in this time of praise, confession, and request. In Christ's name we pray, amen.